Amen. Amen. Yeah, welcome. So great to be with you all here in God's house. Those of you that are joining us online, so good to be with you. Just want everybody to know out there that you are welcome to come and you can uh, absolutely, in the 11 o'clock service, have some social distancing if that's what you desire. There's enough space for you to sit wherever you like, so please come and join us. Glad for all of you that are here and coming back, and it's great to see everybody as they're re-engaging in-person services and stuff, so it's awesome to be in God's house with you. So I just was curious if last week, if the same people, yeah, thank you Jesus, right? Uh, If the same people that maybe warned you last week that you might be late, did they tell you they got out early today? All right, okay, anyway, I just want to make sure we're covering all the bases. We're not a perfect church or perfect people. We're here because we know we need God's help, and he's provided that help through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's amazing. Did you spend at least five minutes a day, five days last week, in God's Word? I'm, uh, do I need to ask that again? There's coffee over there if you need to wake up still. Unless you didn't do it, we got to spend time in God's Word, right? Did you share Jesus with someone this week? All right, did you spend some time along with God with no personal agendas? See, the thing is, is like, um, it's hard for us to do that. It's one of the hardest of my spiritual disciplines to practice is being alone with God without, like, asking for something. So I try and schedule this so that I do it at least once a month that I go to be with God to be with God and not to petition God, ask God for anything. So, you know, it's, uh, it's very difficult to go to, to God when you know that he's the answer to everything and then you have people around you that need him and you need him. Right? So it's hard to go and just be with God, but we need to do that. And he's asking us to spend that time with him. Do you know what the Holy Spirit's saying to you? Yeah. Are you giving as God has asked you to give in your time, your talents, and your resources? Yeah. Did you invite someone to church with you this week? Yeah. All right, there's cards right there, and they're out in the Welcome Center. Some brand new ones that are, uh, come join us. Uh, we just had them redone, so we have plenty of them available. So if you want to take some of those and invite someone to come to church with you, that'd be amazing. So God's doing some great stuff in our lives your life, his church, and this world. Don't be overwhelmed by what you see happening in the news and all that other stuff. This week is National Day of Prayer. Hope you know that. I forgot to mention that in the service prior, but this coming Thursday is National Day of Prayer, and so please check that out and engage in that prayer for our nation, for all that's those six things they're asking you to pray for. You can look that up on their site, and it is, an, it is a... Um, statement that's made by our president each time it's been going on for quite a many years i can't remember the exact date but it's way back um that it began and the president signs an edict for this national day of prayer and so we need to engage in that prayer and asking god to move in our nation for our leaders and all those things that we're supposed to be doing biblically as christians regularly okay but this is a special day for all of us to come together for prayer so please check that out as we look at god's word today We're going to uh, learn some things again from what God says to us about who he is and what he's asking of us as his people. So when we do this, we're going to look at the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And as we look at that, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, write about the earthly ministry of Jesus. And in this, we know that when you read the Gospels, Jesus had conflict with religious people. And usually the, the, the most, the majority of his conflict came from the existing church and the leadership of the church. So when we see that, we see that the problem was that the leaders of the religious church, which was God's church, by the way, it is Old Testament law, Judaism was what God had established. But the problem was in 
the leaders themselves, not what they were teaching. So as we look at this, we see that there was a conflict continuously between Jesus and them. So within the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it's called the Torah to the, the those that practice uh, Judaism, Old Testament law. That's the first five books of the, of the Bible. And then there's the, the law and the prophets and all that that happens, which is the Old Testament. Within the, the Torah, the law, it's not just a five books of laws. It's a book teaching us that God created us for relationship. God desires relationship with us. And it was God himself that pursued the relationship with humanity. But in that context of God speaking through Moses and through the prophets, we learn that there were 613 commandments given. Now, all of us know there were 10 commandments. We all know that. God wrote them himself on the rock and gave them to Moses for the children of Israel. But when you look at all the commandments of God through the law and the prophets and all that stuff in the Old Testament there, there were 613 commandments. Now, Understanding that there were that many commandments and people can't even keep the Ten Commandments, you know why everything was a mess, right? You know that, right? Y'all have broken the Ten Commandments. You have. If you look at the New Testament and read it, at some point in time in your life, you've broken all ten of them. That includes murder, because Jesus said if you hate someone in your heart, you've murdered them already. So that's always the one we kind of use as escape. I never killed nobody. I'm a good person. No, you have. All right? Anyway, let's just go on. We're going to struggle with this a little bit as we go, but we want to see what God's saying to us, and it's amazing. So as we look into God's Word and we see Jesus made a proclamation very early in His ministry life, and this is a struggle that a lot of Christians and churches have as we try and grab a hold of some of the 613 commandments of the Old Testament and make them applicable in our lives today in the church. And we teach people that if you don't do this and this, that you're not really a Christ follower. All right, this has been happening since Jesus resurrected from the grave and sent the Holy Spirit. This has been a struggle in the church. So as we look at this, we want to look at Matthew 5 and what Jesus said early in his ministry. 5, 6, and 7, it won't happen there, but Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest dissertation we have from Jesus in his teaching. So now listen to what it says in verse 17. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. All right, so Jesus said those commandments are from God. I'm not abolishing them. I'm coming to accomplish their purpose. So the commandments were given for us to understand what we need to do to have a relationship with God. Jesus says, I'm here to accomplish their purpose. That's a pretty awesome statement right there. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment, and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, this statement of Jesus is a pretty profound and in-your-face statement. Not only is he telling us that he's the fulfillment of the law, but then and, and all that it is that he's accomplished in the law. But now he says, those guys that are all your teachers, your leaders in the church, unless you're better than them, you're not going to heaven. Now, that was a tough thing to hear for the people because you see the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the priests, ministers, all those in the church were seen as very righteous because they lived the law. They did. And so the people looked up to them and saw them as the representations of God in their lives. And so now Jesus says, unless you live better than them, you're not making it. So the people already knew they weren't even living that good. Right? They knew they weren't. They weren't doing it. They couldn't keep the 613 laws that God commanded. And the guys that they looked at as the examples of what it meant to live the righteous life, Jesus says, you got to be better than that. In other words, we're all screwed, man. We're, we're done for. There's no hope for us. So, what is the deal here? What is it Jesus is saying to us? Because it's pretty important for us to get this church because I look at it like the righteous life that they lived. They lived this way. I want you to know that God was never interested in, nor is he looking for, an outward show of yourself and how good you are. And that's exactly what these guys were. They were all about showing how good they were how much better than you they were. And so when we look at what Jesus says, he clarifies some of the wrong teachings that had taken place by them in the scriptures that follow these. This is what he says. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even anger with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, by the way, this is the New Living Translation, so, like, uh, I know that some other translations may not use that word there, but it's, this is what it's saying to you here and to me. It's like we're, we're saying these words of disrespect and disregard to someone, right? Listen, he says, if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, remember, this is Jesus talking. So the whole thing saying, like, I never murdered nobody as our free pass saying, like, I'm good. He just blew that out of the water. Because, see, that's one of the things we always slide to. Like, I'm good. I've never done that. And he says, no. But if you have those types of feelings towards someone else where you hate them, you disrespect them, you're speaking bad about them. He's like, you've done it. Not only that, if you curse them, you're in danger of hell's fire. Like, whoa. See, church, right there, as we listen to what Jesus, this is Jesus talking. He's saying, look, the, the, the law is not about how you present yourself to everyone else. It's what's going on inside of you. And God knows. So in his clarification, he's letting us know that words matter, attitudes matter, relationships matter, um, how I view other people matter. See, God's law was to teach people, all of us, well, we're going to see that. I won't even say that yet because we're going to read about it. What does the law actually do for us? 
We'll find out as we go forward in the message. Let's look in Matthew 23. Jesus proclaims a judgment on the teachers of the Pharisees, of the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And this is what he says. And later in your devotions, when you're spending your five minutes at least a day, five days a week, you should read Matthew 23. Man, is it profound and it's just like crazy. Jesus just absolutely rips these guys. He does. It's pretty amazing what he does. But let's just look at the beginning part of it. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example for they don't practice what they teach. I mean, that's pretty straight in your face there. (laughs) He's not pulling any punches. He's saying, you know how you view those guys and you elevate them and you think they're something? He's like, they're not. They're not living what they're telling you to do themselves. And he says, and I know. See, God knows our heart. He knows what's going on inside of us. And so as he says this to him, he says, don't do it like they do it, but do what's actually being said and how the law is taught. Do that, but don't follow them. Let's go on reading. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and they never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside and they wear robes with extra long tassels. So if you go back to the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy, God said, write the law on your arms, your heart, over on those doorposts of your house. He was saying, put it in front of you so you're always doing it. So they physically put it on their bodies to show how righteous they were. It was like a badge of honor. And they were showing everybody. They made it extra big. So maybe you had a little tiny wristband while they were putting a bicep band on. And it was like flexing out there like, yeah, I got God's word on me. Check out these tassels. (laughs) I mean, it's all about a show. That's what Jesus said. Look, they're just parading themselves around so that you look at them and think, wow, he's holy. He's like, no, don't follow them. All right, let's see what else is going on. And they love to sit at the head of the table at banquets in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi, which means teacher, you know, like, oh, teach me, wise one. Please give me some of your wisdom. And so Jesus is like, look, this is what it's all about. This is not what it is. So Jesus is teaching his people, his servants, his disciples, and saying, look, following God's teachings is absolutely necessary for us, but self-righteous people are not the example. (laughs) So, as we're struggling through this, and the struggle that's happened in the church is like, all right, so how do I follow the law and yet I'm set free from the law through Christ and do everything that God's asked me to do and be the thing that God's asking? So we're wrestling inside of this. And what happens is, as Christians look at it, we're trying to figure out what is it that I got to do for God to be what he's asked me to be. Now look at what Jesus said. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their 
purpose. What was their purpose? Their purpose was so that you and I could have a relationship with God. That was the purpose. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill their purpose. I am here to make a way for you to have a relationship with God. Man, thank you, Jesus. That's awesome. So we're called to follow Christ. He has accomplished the purpose of the law to make a way for us in a way that we were never able to make for ourselves. See, when the Apostle Paul writes to the church, and he's bringing God's word and teaching us, having been a teacher of the law and Pharisee himself, having lived that self-righteous life before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He knows what's going on there. And now in his relationship with Jesus, he's understanding what God is all about in the intention of a relationship. So he writes to the church in the book of Romans. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. See, there's nobody that's not guilty. God's law shows us that there is nobody that measures up to what God has asked that God demands, which is holiness and righteousness. So he says, like, the law was given to show us we're not good enough. You know, a lot of people, when they find out I'm a pastor, which I don't, you know, I don't, it says Wrangler, not pastor, you know, when I walk around, I, hey, I'm Pastor Dave. I only do that in specific certain places where someone's asking or I need to let them know where I'm coming from, but usually I just say, hey, I'm Dave. Because as soon as someone finds out I'm a pastor, they're like, you know, I don't go to church, but I'm a good person. They start to explain themselves like that, or they start to say things. And so it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, church, the thing is, is that when we look into word, God's word, when people try and justify ourselves and say, I'm a good person, we've already looked at, like, I haven't done this, I haven't done this. We don't look at what we've done, but we try and process what I haven't done. Therefore, it makes me good because I base it on, I know there's people in prison that have murdered. I know this person had adultery on their, on their spouse. I know this is going on in their life, and therefore, I'm good because I've never done that. The problem with this philosophy and this idea in our mind is, is that there's someone that's better than you. And if there's someone better than you, that makes them good and you not good. Right? If good is the standard, and we search the whole globe, we could find the best. So before Mother Teresa died, you could always look at Mother Teresa and say, she's good. But like if nobody lived like her, then the rest of all of people are bad. And we're lost. So it's not a matter of us being good or anything like that. It's looking at this. God says, no, you're all guilty. None of you can live to my standard. You're all susceptible to sin. This is what I demand. There are 613 commands and you can't live them. And the ones who think they are, aren't. (laughs) That's Jesus saying. He's like, so church, this is what I'm saying. We're like, we're messed up. We're permanently messed up. We can't be right until. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. The Apostle Paul is consistently teaching the church, look, you are no longer under the law, 
The law has been fulfilled in Christ, and Jesus Christ has accomplished something that you and I could never accomplish. Nothing we did, nothing we could ever do, nothing we could ever earn could ever get to a place for what Jesus did for us. And so in Matthew 22, Jesus says this. He was asked, like, what's the greatest commandment? What do we got to do? This guy was like, I want to do right. I follow all the commandments. What do I need? What's the best? What's the greatest? What is going on? Jesus says this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to these words now, church. Please hear this. This is Jesus talking, right? Remember? The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So now let's just throw away 613 laws and commandments for a second. This makes it, I'm a simple person, this makes it a lot easier for me to grasp. He's saying like, look, the way to fulfill all 613 of them is to do this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. So now this makes sense. Oh, so I need to love everybody. All right. So now we need to understand what love is. Now we have a problem. (laughs) So all relationships are based on love. All relationships. And, well, let's look at Romans 13 for a second before we get into that. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. So, like, I want you to know you're obligated to love everybody. You are obligated. It is a call on your life. Going on and reading, if you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others. So, love fulfills the requirements of God's law. All right. So now we've taken everything down to one thing. All of it has boiled down to one thing, and that one thing is love. So now Paul is affirming exactly what Jesus taught, teaching the same thing. God's word will always affirm itself. It's good. Now let's see what's going on here. Our relationship with God and others is all about love. One of the biggest challenges we face is understanding this because we have a misunderstanding of what love is and our language itself creates a barrier of understanding this. One of the problems with the English language is that when we talk about love, loving God, loving neighbors, loving whatever, 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 we have this problem right here, and it's actually in the very definition of our word in the English language. In Webster's Dictionary, this is what it says, love. The noun version of love, an intense feeling of deep affection. That's our definition of love. The verb of that. Feel deep affection for someone. (laughs) So look, here's the problem. In the English language, our own 
our own language limits us in understanding something that is critical to our relationship with God and one another. Love is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. And so our very definition of love is a feeling. And so now, when we look at the Word of God and it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself, I'm looking for a feeling about God. I'm looking for a feeling about you all. But feelings change. Love does not change. God is. His Word, we're going to read in a moment, says God is love. Therefore, God is not a feeling or an emotion. God is not this deep feeling I have. And when I walk into church today, it wasn't like I looked around the room and I had deep emotional feelings for all y'all. I didn't. And I don't think everybody had them for me. In our earlier service, I said, some of you probably turned the other way when you saw me coming. (laughs) I'm not offended by that, by the way. It's okay. All right. See, love is not about how I feel about you. And yet, our own language teaches us that this is what love is. This is why we struggle with understanding God and relationships in our culture. Because you see, if I don't feel like it, then I don't do it. And therefore, if I don't feel like I love God, then glad He loves me. If I don't feel like I love you, then I can walk away from the relationship and be like, well, whatever, I obviously I don't love them. The problem is, is that when we look into God's word, we find out something that is deeper than our language and our understanding. When Moses was having his visit with God at the fiery bush and God's saying, you need to go down to my people and tell them I'm coming to redeem them. And Moses says, well, like, who should I say is sending me? You know what God said? I am. Just think about that for a minute. It's kind of like, wait a minute. I'm supposed to give him a name. God says, I am. He's saying like, I am. I am God. I am. I'm not a feeling. I'm not an emotion. Go down there. And when you say something to him, Moses, all of a sudden they're going to have this warm, fuzzy feeling inside and say, oh, God sent you. No. I am. He exists. He is God. Therefore, there is no explanation needed. This is who he is. All right, so let's go forward with that thought for a minute. My feelings can be moved by love. They can be. And I can have feelings that are caused by love. But the feelings themselves are byproducts of the love. They are not love in themselves. See, I had feelings before I knew Jesus. Didn't you? Didn't you have emotions? Didn't, didn't you have deep emotional feelings for some people? And you didn't know Jesus. Therefore, you didn't know God. Therefore, you didn't have love in you. You and I, prior to Jesus, were incapable of love. Huh. So then our whole understanding of love is really jacked up. Because I thought I loved before I knew Jesus. 
So the reason why I screwed that all up and why we screw it up all the time is because prior to Jesus, all I had was this feeling. And when the feeling left, I could leave because I'm not committed to you past the way I feel. Having done, met with countless couples and seen marriages fall apart, a common statement that happens in a marriage that is collapsed and done for is this. I don't know if I ever loved them. So you see what's happened is there's this, the deep emotional feeling is gone. And therefore, I begin to question everything because all I know is the current feeling I have. And the current feeling I have is empty. Therefore, I look at them and say, no, I don't love you. Now let's put it back into the definition of God. And when we look in Scripture, see, when God says that He is love, God is not a feeling, emotion, or someone who is only present part of the time. I am. God is. So, God's Word teaches us that if God is love, therefore, the world is trying to define something that it does not have, it does not understand, nor has it experienced. That's why Webster was struggling as he gave us the definition of what we interpret as love because God was not part of it. So everything the world bases things on is feelings. So without Jesus, you can't experience love, period. First John 4 says this, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. See, God's word says this to us. You can't have love without having God. Love comes from God. So let's continue to love one another. We're talking to the church now. Love one another. Let's keep going. What else does he say? Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. See how we know God? We know God by His love. But let's go on. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. All right. So now we're affirming all this stuff. He's not an emotion. He's not a feeling. He is. Now we're supposed to love one another. So you don't have to worry that you didn't have any deep emotional feelings when you saw me. It's okay. And it's okay that I didn't have any for you. Doesn't mean we don't love each other. See, God is here and he's with us and he's like, I am loving through you. And here's how we learn what God is saying to us about how we live in love. Let's go on and read verse 9. Following on with that. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. So now we have an example of what love is. Let that sink in. God showed how much he loved us by sending. So he gave. He gave something. What did he give us? What did Jesus say? I'm here and I have come to fulfill the purpose of the law. God gave us something that we had to have to have a relationship with Him that is love. God gave us love and it was in the form of Jesus Christ. God Himself. 
So this is the word of God. God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son in the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Isn't that awesome? This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Thank you, Jesus, man. Isn't that awesome? He's like, man, I'm giving you something you can't do, you can't earn, you don't possess. Church, listen. Sin is the absence of love. That's what sin is. It's the absence of love. Therefore, it's the absence of God. And to be forgiven, God took our sins and placed them on Jesus Christ. Therefore, love took our sins upon it that we might be given love. (laughs) He's amazing. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love has brought the full expression in us. Amen. Isn't that great? God's word is amazing. So you see, my love for you is my giving to you, my serving you, my being with you. Not, I mean that in a good way, right? You know, that's what Jesus is saying to us right there. We're committed to one another. There's nothing about how I feel about you. And God has given us his spirit as a proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the son of God have God living in them and they live in God. What is it that we're living in? Love. All right, follow it. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. Another statement. And all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. Hmm. So we're growing in our love. How are we growing? Because we're growing in God. Remember how we're being transformed into Christ likeness? So I am growing in love. Love is beginning to be understood by me. I am finally understanding what love is. Love is a commitment. It's I'm all in. Love is not about what you do for me. Love is what I can do for you. That's what God's teaching us. And therefore, as I grow in this love, I get to understand God more. It's like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. Why would you ever love me, God? And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid in the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus. So like I said, before I knew Jesus, I thought I was in love with Kim. I mean, I really did. Kim is my wife, if you don't know her. Uh, And we were dating each other as kids, you know. If she was 15, I was 16 when we first started talking and so i had deep emotional feelings for her okay that's what i felt for her what i felt was man is she hot 
and I want her. And she needs to be with me because she is the one I want to meet my needs. And I'm being just blunt and flat out with you, really. Seriously, that's the way I viewed her. I mean, she is the one. And I pursued her relentlessly to convince her that she is the one. So, like I said, I was in love with Kim. To the best of my understanding, to the best of my abilities, I loved her. And it was a deep emotional feeling. So, of course, I was like, I'm going to marry that girl. And all that I had planned was to get her. And on one night at church, her and I were together. And God spoke to our hearts, and we came and committed our lives to Jesus Christ together. And on that night, (laughs) on that night, I loved her. And I realized something as I progressed forward in my walk with God in that moment was the first time I ever loved her. I actually saw Kim differently. Yes, she was beautiful. Yes, I had deep emotional feelings for her, but I saw her different. I didn't see her as something that I should obtain to conquer, to have. I began to see her differently. (laughs) Honestly, I tell you, she's not in the service right now. She was in the earlier one, so I'm telling you this because she's downstairs teaching the kids. See, as we get older, we don't look the same. I'm not, that's not a revelation, I hope, to any of y'all. You know, I'm looking at myself like, whoa, dude, you know, <laughs> things are not going well for you. <laughs> well, my wife doesn't look like she did when she was 15 or 18 or 25, right? But honestly, I love her more than I ever have before. And she and I tell each other that all the time. And it's, it's the craziest thing that you actually do. And the thing is, is like, why? Because of God. Like, it's more than a feeling. There's this relationship that is birthed through God who is love that is something so much more meaningful than that other thing that I was pursuing. Because see, if I... I hope you're okay with me just being blunt with you, but like, see, if I conquered her physically and we had sexual relationships and stuff, then you have that emotional feeling. But afterwards, you know, that feeling leaves. So a lot of relationships only last that long or someone's pursuing another relationship like that outside of a relationship because they're looking for that feeling. When you go back to God and see what love is, love is nothing. See, God showed us how much he loved it. He gave. So once I started that relationship with God, I began to understand, like, wait a minute. This is about what I produce and give to her, not what she does for me. It's completely opposite of this world. It's not how I feel about her today. I, don't, I can't get up and just say, hey, babe, I, I have no feelings for you today, so I'll, I'll catch you later. <laughs> I'll show up when I start feeling it. Yeah, you know, you know how well that's going to go. <laughs> nothing to do with it. Church, it has nothing to do with it. I'm in love, whether I feel it or not. Why? Because I'm in relationship. And I'm in a relationship that someone else made possible. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Think about it. I could have never had a relationship with Kim unless she made it possible. She had to accept my offer of love. 
I had to accept hers. Therefore, we have a relationship based on a commitment of love. So it's not a feeling. It's love. Only possible because of God. So prior to to that moment that I met Jesus, I can honestly tell you that Kim was the only person that I had feelings for on the planet. I mean this in a good way. I did not like people. I didn't like anybody. I didn't like myself. That's why I didn't like anybody. I was not okay with me. I was not okay with you. I hated everyone. I hated myself. I only loved Kim. She's the only reason I continued to exist, and God used her in my life to help me big time. And way beyond what I could ever tell you. But see, when I would go out and by myself, even with Kim, I would literally verbally cuss at people right out loud looking at their face. I was just a little punk. I mean, I still am like, somebody should have smacked me. But I would cuss at people. I was angry. I didn't like people. You know why? Because there was no love in my heart. The only thing I had was deep emotional feelings, and they were not good. I had zero capacity to love. And so the only thing I had was the opposite. Hate. I hate you. So here's the thing. It's pretty funny. We're, it's not funny, but we're born this way with the absence of love, right? We're born in sin. I didn't even know what I was going to preach about today, but I'm sitting at the... I don't remember where we were sitting in the house. We were sitting on the couch, my wife and I. And we have our niece and nephew and their little boys living with us right now. And the one little boy, is four years old, comes around the corner and smacks the wall and he says, I don't love mom. She makes me mad. <laughs> she had just disciplined him, right? So he was feeling something that was not love. Nobody told him that you feel love. Listen, I mean, seriously, it was out of the mouth of this little child. I don't love her anymore. She makes me mad. He was feeling anger because he was disciplined, and therefore he attributed that to an absence of love for his mother. It's pretty profound wisdom right there. It really is. I mean, he need a little spanking on his butt, but it's still, I'm just saying. Right? You know what? I mean, think about that for just a minute, because that's exactly the way we are in the world. You make me mad, therefore I don't love you, therefore get out of my life. And that's why our relationships are just falling apart everywhere. The Western culture has based relationships all on feelings because that's what we've been told love is. Therefore, relationships are crumbling and falling everywhere because with the absence of God is the absence of love, which is the absence of the ability to have a relationship at all. Because God created us for relationships with Him. He is love. All relationships are based on love. That's why Jesus said, all the laws and the commandments hang on these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That is impossible without God. Amazing. And God knew it. Therefore, He came. Love. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Therefore, God lives in us, church. And if God lives in us now, we have the ability to love. It's the only way. If you don't have Jesus in your heart, you don't have love in your heart. That's what's messed up in your relationships. I'm just saying. 
And if you have love in your heart, but your spouse doesn't, that's why there's issues in your relationship. That's why God's word says, don't marry an unbeliever. There's no way to have unity. There's no way to have love. Now, once you're in it, you can't jump out of it. Seriously. But we know the source. The source is God, always has been, always will be. He is love. Let's get out of here today. So, let's do our action steps, all right? Since God is love and the Holy Spirit is present within us, church, now we have the the capability of loving the way God intended in the very beginning. The only way we can live the Christian life is because of love. Church, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Who are you having a hard time loving? Think about it for a second. Who are you having a hard time loving? Because you see, God challenged us and says, love him and love everyone else. Otherwise, you don't got it. Huh. Because see, God loves them. God loves them. That person, whatever that name is, even if it's you, God loves them. And therefore, if God dwells within you, then God loves them. So who is it they're having a hard time forgiving? So what is God saying to you through that? Who do you need to forgive, yourself or them? Some of us were abused as kids. And therefore, we see that person who was supposed to represent love, maybe mom, dad, relative, friend, neighbor, whatever. And therefore, we see that as unlovable. But you see, love was no part of any of that, even if sex was involved. And that's why we have to understand sex isn't love. But many of us have been wounded. And therefore, we just kind of push love away, push God away, push everything away. We need to forgive And remember this, church, for God so loved that he gave. We love before it's asked for. Therefore, we forgive before it's asked for. Not everyone's going to ask forgiveness. For God so loved the world that he gave. It wasn't contingent on those that would receive it. He simply gave. Therefore, we forgive. We give love, not based on their deserving it, but because of who God is. So who do you need to forgive? It might be you. It might be a parent. Whatever it is, I want you to know that love demands that we forgive. Stand with me. Altar's open. God's speaking to you about any of this. Please come and talk to him. He's calling. Some serious stuff. If you're watching online, there's contact information there. You can get a hold of us if you need some help. But church, it's all about that surrender, right? If you need Jesus, please come and get him. If you need forgiveness, please come talk to him. Give it up. Forgive others. Forgive self. Let's move into that place where God has called us into that relationship of love. What Christ has fulfilled for us that we could not do any other way. Father, we love you. We thank you so, so much for Jesus. Thank you for love, God. Thank you for the new understanding you've given us about what love is. Thank you that you've allowed us to experience what true love is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there is love. Thank you, God. Now, Lord, as we leave the church, go out into the world, let us be love 
for the world, all for the glory of God. Let us go home and love our family, love those that we work with, love God unconditionally the way you love us. We thank you for this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, amen. God is good. He is.